Although Uranus and Neptune are superficially twin planets, they are different enough to remind us we still have a lot to learn about the mix of natural laws and historical accidents that formed the planets and fashioned their destinies. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh, your baby singing in Ferris. the dark. Oh, well, that didn't go as planned. How's it going, Jamie? Oh, I'm just, I'm just stressed out with with work and life, Matt. But you know what? We've always got space. We have got space. I've, I've just spent my entire week stuck in traffic jams in the car. It's taken yeah. me five hours to drive home. It took me four hours to drive across London yesterday. It's been a horror story. I think I'm going to have a beer tonight. Definitely having a beer tonight. So, in fact, I'm not quite sure why I'm not having a beer now. Sorry, Spodcats, oh. this has come out a little bit late because I was stuck in a traffic jam and couldn't uh, speak to Jamie yesterday. Total nightmare. But anyway, enough of our woes. Enough. Let's get on with space. So, Jamie, here's a really interesting one. I, I, I seem to remember a few podcasts ago, mm. I was a bit confused about the difference between Celsius and centigrade. You were. The birthday boy of today, Jean-Pierre Christine. So oh, really? I've, I've, learned, I've learned quite a lot about Celsius, which is, which is really convenient. Because did you know that all those SI units like Celsius, Kelvin, kilograms and all that lot, since the 20th of May, quite recently, oh, have, all, right? have all been changed, their definitions? Yeah, how about that? I, well, that's ridiculous. Why have they done that? Well, to make them so that they all relate to constants of the universe rather than, uh, like, for example, the kilogram was like a, a, a platinum ball locked in a safe in France somewhere. And uh, now it's related to the Planck constant, that was it. Oh. Yes. But, yes, the Celsius has been is now defined via the Kelvin by the Boltzmann constant. Oh, I like it. That completely aside, yes, Jean-Pierre Christin was a French physicist and astronomer and a musician, you'll like to hear. Wow, nice. He reversed the Celsius thermometer scale. So it used to be water was boiling at 0 degrees and ice was melting at 100 degrees, but then he swipped it, swapped it round, swipped it round, swapped it round so that water froze at naught and boiled at 100. Makes a bit more sense. Well, yeah, and, and it's what's used today. But get this, it wasn't until 1985 that the BBC switched to Celsius, which is obviously named after Anders Celsius, who the year before Jean-Pierre Christine had actually created a thermometer that was the other way round. So it was the wrong way round to the modern way round, but was a year before Jean-Pierre Christine's one. And so they decided to call it the Celsius scale. And one of the reasons why they called it the Celsius scale is because they already called it centigrade because centigrade comes from the Latin centum and gradus, which means steps. So centum, 100, oh. and steps, steps, steps in between 100, centigrade. 100. Yeah. Annoyingly in French, though, it's, you use that for angular measurement as well. So centigrade wasn't particularly handy. So they started to call it Celsius after Anders Celsius. Why are they trying to confuse things? I know. In 1744, there was another guy, Carl Linnaeus, 
um, who reversed the Anders Celsius system. So had Jean-Pierre Christen not done it, it could have been called the Linnaeus instead of the Celsius. Yeah. Well, I'm into it. Yeah. Well, Americans won't even know what we're talking about. Oh, that'd be really confused. Well, they, they still use Fahrenheit, which is very unusual. Get with it, Yanks. Pretty much the rest of the world uses Celsius. And in Britain, we occasionally call it centigrade. And now I know why. We just complain about the weather, whatever it is. Yeah, it's always some inconvenient centigrade. It's too hot. Whether it's too hot. It's too cold. Too cold. It's too nice out. It was too hot in my car yesterday when the air conditioning wasn't working. Oh. And it was London. And it was hot. And oh, I was love, stressed to hell. We love to moan. So what's our, who's our special guest this week, Jamie? Matt, I don't know. Neptune. <laughs> Stop that or I'll be swearing all in this podcast for you to edit. Yeah, I know. Thanks. It's like it's not my job's not hard enough. Yeah, we need to stop being a then. Oh, God. I, I, do you know what? I enjoyed last week's Titan so much. I, I thought we'd it. do the. I thought we'd do the same with Neptune. Well, before we dive into Neptune, did you watch The Planets, Matt? I did watch The Planets, and I noticed that uh, Brian and Cox... He, he must did, have heard our did podcast. Did Titan, yeah. Did Titan, didn't I he? I mean, I'm sure he probably shot that before, but I'm just saying it was kind of weird. And it was amazing, wasn't it? It was good. I liked all the imagery, but... He managed to get about three facts across compared to our about 25. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not bragging. Just saying. Because I think it was more beautifully filmed than our podcast. That's true. Yeah, they definitely got the visual element. I really like the fact about walking around Mercury that because its, it's day is so long, you can walk quite slowly and stay at dusk all the way around mm. and just keep going. I like it too. Neptune, Jamie, it's a very, very interesting planet. Well, I think it is. Uranus, obviously discovered by Herschel in 1781, it wasn't for 50 more years, pretty much, that Neptune was discovered in 1846. That's a long time after, isn't it? Well, Uranus had almost doubled the size of the solar system, whereas Neptune adds another 50% onto the solar system. So that that mm. is how far away it is. It's a long way. There's only been one probe that's gone anywhere near it, and that's Voyager 2 in 1989. So virtually everything we know is from that. And, of course, Hubble uh, and some very large ground telescopes with adaptive optics have been looking at it. But most of what we know is from Voyager. Okay. So how many times in my lifetime do you think Neptune has been the furthest away planet in the solar system? I'm going to say four. When I was born, it was the second furthest. But in 1979, Pluto's elliptical orbit takes it closer to the sun. So now it's become the furthest away. So that's one. But then in 1999, Pluto comes back and takes its place. So it gets demoted. But then okay. in 2006, Pluto itself is demoted and Neptune reclaims the title and still has it. So twice in my lifetime, it has become the furthest away planet. I remember that well in 2006. It caused quite the uproar. It does. But actually, when you listen to this podcast... You will. It, it, I actually think it makes it very clear why Pluto shouldn't be considered a planet. That's right. Neptune is often called a gas giant along with Jupiter, Saturn and Uranus. Mm. Uranus and Neptune 
are probably better referred to as ice giants because Jupiter and Saturn are pretty much just hydrogen and helium. But Uranus and Neptune are pretty much twin planets and they both are icy with rocky cores. Are they quite similar to Titan then? No. Because Titan's quite icy with a rocky core, isn't it? Think of Uranus as being like a grape, purple grape, a, a deep azure grape. And mm. the, the rocky core is the little pip in the middle. So, it's, you know, a, a, a grape with a pip in it, not a, not a pipless grape. Um, so it's, it's like that. I think the core of um, Titan would be considerably bigger compared to its volume than that. True. And Mercury, much more so. What is really weird, it's smaller than Uranus, ever so t- slightly smaller than Uranus in diameter. But it's because it's denser, it's actually got more gravity. Oh. Where do you think Earth fits in terms of gravity in the solar system? So what? So Jupiter has got the most gravity. Then what do you think is next? So Jupiter's got the most gravity. Mm-hmm. And then I would say it's Saturn. No, Sat- Saturn's smaller than Earth's. Oh. A little bit smaller than Earth's surface gravity. It's actually only Neptune that has a slightly higher gravity than Earth. In the whole solar system, okay. other than Jupiter and the sun, of course, which are pretty much the entire solar system when you add them together. Yeah. That's it. That, that, everything else is just a rounding error. Um, so, yeah, that, that's pretty incredible, isn't it? But even though it's, it, the gravity is only 40, 14% or thereabouts more stronger than it is on Earth, despite the fact that it's 17 times more massive. But because of the extra volume, of course, it's this you know gaseous great big ball of icy gas – um, mm. it, it's it's actually not that much stronger. But you'd need twice the escape velocity to get off the planet, so something that even SLS couldn't achieve. So if you landed on Neptune, not that you could, but if you could, if you did, you'd never get off it with modern rocketry. It would be pretty no, impossible. that would be tricky. So, yeah, that's that's just a bit of a rundown of, of, of Neptune itself. So the, the really interesting thing is how it was discovered and the raging controversy, and it's still controversial to this day, who discovered it. Are you sure it wasn't me? I think you were born after its discovery, so we're going to have to rule you out. Well, who did discover it? Just, just to get you an image about how far Neptune is away. If Earth was a tennis ball... You love a tennis ball. Neptune would be about the size of a football and it would be about 15 miles away. So imagine your tennis ball on yeah, a tennis court insane. and then think about something 15 miles away and that would be the football of Neptune. It's Blimey. pretty incredible, isn't it? And for well, people have been moaning at us, but we no, not moaning, they've been, been quite nice about it. The fact that we use miles, but we do in Britain, uh, the rest of the Europe, oh, I'm very sorry. Yeah. Je Sorry suis désolé to our French friends, etc. It's twenty-three kilometers. There we go. Trying to keep yeah. everyone happy. Yes, yeah. So, so, but yeah. So it's obviously impossible to see with the naked eye. It's just not bright enough. But you can see it with binoculars. And if you've got a pretty decent telescope, you can actually resolve it to a blue disc. So its apparent size is about two point three arc seconds. So that's like holding a human hair at arm's length and looking down the sort of core of the human hair. So very, very small indeed. Oh, um, yeah. Um, so, and it's, it's the only planet as a result that had to be found by mathematical prediction rather than sort of going out and looking for it. 
So I'm going to give you the main players in the discovery of Neptune. Okay, line them up. Line them up. So first of all is Alexis Bouvard, who was mm-hmm. a student of the great Laplace. And I love I love a bit of Laplace transforms. Oh, you do? Yeah, he's, he's a glory. So uh, yes, Alexis Bouvard. And he realised that an unex- the unexpected changes in the orbit of Uranus uh, were probably due to something else orbiting out uh, further away. Um, and so he sort of, sometime after about 1821, he was starting to work on that problem. Okay. Now the next person up who really does have a very strong claim is a, a guy called John Couch Adams, a Cornishman who was uh, working on the orbit of Uranus and he was studying the data and in 1843, he asked Sir George Airy, the Astronomer Royal, to give him some more data, of which he did. He, he got some data in 1844 and then produced some several different estimates of where he thought this planet might be. By, the, by 1846, he'd written down right. some estimate orbits for this, uh, for, for this planet X. Um, but... The main player here is Urbain La Verrière, who um, independently of Adams, didn't know that Adams was doing this. He was working on the same problem between 1845 and 46, but he just couldn't get any of his um, compatriots to get involved. But weirdly, George Airy, Sir George Airy, the astronomer royal, had seen Le Verrière's estimates and realised that they were really similar to Adams' estimates so he persuaded James Chalice, the director of Cambridge Observatory, to go look for go look for the planet, in hope of rescuing the matter from a state which is almost desperate. But Chalice, despite looking for a couple of years, didn't find it. So Do you know what's weird, Matt? Mm-hmm. I one of my best friends who I've been to school went to school with when I was four years old, and we've been friends ever since is called James Chalice, and I saw him today. <laughs> now, that is actually genuinely pretty that weird. That is weird, isn't it? Yeah. But anyway, I, as you were. Yes, <laughs> that is actually amazing. So J- James Chalice, yeah, yeah. J- but y- you'll be gutted in a second when you, when, you, oh. when you hear what happens to James Chalice. Oh, what? So Johann Gottfried Gala, who was uh, at the Berlin Observatory, mm. the German equivalent, I suppose, of James Chalice, had been persuaded by this time by Le Verrier to, to, to look, just look for this new planet. Heinrich d'Arest, a student of Johann's, suggested they can compare recently drawn sky charts. And within a okay. day of receiving that letter, they found it. So jo- Johann Gottfried Gala was the first person to to nail it to say Neptune's there, but he used Le Verrier's predictions, and it was only one degree out, one degree of arc out compared to Adam's prediction was about twelve degrees out. Um, but get this, your mate James Chalice yeah. realised that he had observed the planet on fourth oh. and the twelfth of August earlier that year. And um, but just didn't recognise it because he didn't have up to date star mats like the uh, Germans oh, I had. Feel sick. And not only that, 
he was just distracted because he was actually looking for comets. That was his main sort of area of interest, and so he just did not see it. So oh, chalice. So chalice cocked it up, really. Um, well, and, and, of course, the French and the British at that time, we're talking the mid-19th century, we've got quite a bit of rivalry going on at this point. Everyone starts calling it the planet exterior to Uranus or Le Verrier's planet. And this is where it starts to get, you know, pretty heated because no one wants a planet named after a Frenchman. <laughs> so no, the French... Of course not. No, the French, in, in an attempt to get the planet named Le Verrier, started calling Uranus Herschel. So you would, so it's like, yeah, well, you, you, you know, the planet Herschel, why can't we call it Le Verrier? So, yeah. So, um, totally. And everyone soon started to call it Neptune. Uh, I think Le Verrier oh. actually uh, was one of the people that first came up with Neptune, but they started calling them Neptune. And after all, if you think about all the other planets, they are named after Greek and Roman gods. Got so, it. So, yeah. So, the Greek, the modern Greeks call it Poseidon, of course, rather really? than uh, Neptune. And virtually all other cultures around the world, even Yamuris, they call it uh, they call they call it some some mythical sea god is the name of the planet. Although most oh, people that. really call it Neptune. Yeah. Cool. So so it was the Royal Society in England that decided to award Le Verrier the Copley Medal in 1846 for his achievement and didn't even mention Adams. Oh. Even goes on to this day, there was an article in the Scientific America not that long ago, the Brits stole Neptune. The achievement was Verrier's alone. Sounds very aggressive. But if you think that the controversy there is over, turns out, turns out, that, of course, like I said earlier, you couldn't see it without a telescope. But get this, Galileo did see Neptune way back what? in 1612. No way. Yeah, and he mistook it for a, 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 he mistook it for a fixed star. And one of the reasons why he mistook it for a fixed star was on the day of observation, it was just about to go into retrograde orbit. So it would have been in the... The part of its orbit from where, from where you're looking from Earth, where Earth is just overtaking on the inside track, so it looks like Neptune has come to a standstill. So it would have been barely moving in the night sky. God, that's ridiculous. And so, yeah, so no wonder Galileo didn't think it was uh, moving. But he did. Yeah. He did make special kind of uh, a note of it. So, But he just didn't. He just didn't go all the way and then forgot about it or didn't return to it. So, yeah, it's it's a bit There's a bit quite weird. a few players involved here. Yeah. So, yeah, even, even as late as 2009, um, uh, people have sort of gone back to Galileo's papers and found some evidence that he, he thought it wasn't a star. So Galileo was very, very close to discovering Neptune, which would have been... <sighs> Absolutely incredible. Well, that um, would have been. He's done all right, hasn't he, so far? Yeah, and even weirder is John Herschel, who's the son of the great William Herschel who discovered Uranus. He actually also observed Neptune, mistook it for a star as well. Didn't uh, say anything. Yeah. yeah, well, it happens. Yeah, so how about that? I think it's incredible. I, t I have to say, Adams, John Couch Adams, was very um, 
gracious in his defeat. And this is what he says. He says, I mention these dates merely to show that my results were arrived at independently and previous to the publication of those of M. Le Verrier's, and not with the intention of interfering with his just claims to the honours of the discovery. For there is no doubt that his researches were first published to the world and led to the actual discovery of the planet by Dr. Gala. So that's the fact stated above cannot detract in the slightest degree from the credit due to Le Verrier. So even Adams himself gives it to Le Verrier. Do you think he's so laid back because his middle name is Couch? <laughs> yeah, not to be yeah. confused with the other John Adams. No, definitely not. I like John Adams. I like the I like the fact that he conceded there. Well, we've talked a bit about the players involved in discovery, but I want to know a bit more about the planet. The planet and one of its glory moons. Let's do it. It's always good, isn't it, to have a hyperbole and and you know something to be the best of. Mm. And yes, Neptune has the strongest winds in the solar system. How fast are we talking? We're, we're talking six hundred meters per second, or one thousand three hundred miles an hour. So that. For for the atmosphere on Neptune, that's almost supersonic. Well, when you get 100 miles mile winds here, that's strong. An order of magnitude faster. And weirdly, they go the other way round to the spin of the planet as well. A pretty famous paper by V.E. Suomi et al. from 1991 tries to find the plausible mechanism for, mm. for this huge, uh, strong winds. And basically, I think... From what I'm reading about it, it it's 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 from the core heat that's at the centre of Neptune. It's it's hotter than Uranus at the centre. It's got more it's got more of a heat engine than Uranus because Uranus is nothing like this. Uranus is a pretty calm planet. Neptune has these stupidly high winds, and so the heat convex out of the 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 planet and then goes into the super cold atmosphere. So. It's the coldest place in the solar system on a planet is the atmosphere of Neptune. So that is what's causing these extremely strong winds. But as with weather, it's incredibly complicated. So How cold is it? Cloud tops reach minus 218 degrees centigrade or 55 Kelvin. Or to our American friends, minus 361 degrees Fahrenheit. It's colder than Titan. Yeah, so if if you were to jump into Neptune's atmosphere in your swimming trunks, you would flash freeze. (laughs) Flash freeze your bits. Well, no, just the whole of you would flash freeze. Yeah. You would, and then shatter into a million pieces. So it would be a pretty stunning thing to do. Well, it would freeze your shatter. (laughs) <laughs> or your shat, depending on how scary it was. <laughs> but the uh, yeah the, the the temperature at the core is five thousand one hundred degrees centigrade, or for our oh, American friends, paradox, nine nine and a half thousand degrees Fahrenheit. That's a hot oven. But no one really knows why it's so hot at the at the centre, and and, it, and it's like the the heat left from over from Neptune's formation might be enough. But if you consider that, then why doesn't Uranus have this massive heat at the centre as well? So it's a little bit of a mystery why Neptune is hotter than Uranus because it's much, much further away from the sun. <sighs> mm. I just don't know where to start. And, and I, I think one of the reasons why the winds get so high as well is because this at, the atmosphere is, is made from kind of fluid gases that are super cold, so they're mm. pretty frictionless. 
So you get these really, really frictionless, uh, almost kind of liquid gases that are spinning around. So, yeah, it's, it's um, pretty cool. And as a result of these strong winds, Uranus, like Jupiter, uh, has got a great red spot, although in, in Uranus's case, it's a great dark spot. So when Voyager flew past, there was a feature really, really similar to the great red spot on Jupiter, but it was a dark spot. And as Voyager got closer, the actual um, dark stop spot started to develop uh, methane cloud tops, white methane cloud tops as well on top. Uh-huh. Um, but Hubble's been watching that dark spot slowly disappear since then. Uh, and it's probably because it's got nearer the equator. And if you listen to our podcast where we mentioned the Coriolis effect, it's obviously taken the energy at that point and disappeared. Yeah, I think that's what's happened. I'll tell you what about Neptune, though. It's pretty, isn't it? I mean, I know that Saturn is a babe, but Neptune. Neptune's kind of subtly beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, that's the thing. It's, you know, it's and and the colour is just so alluring. And the colour is actually really, really is. odd. So the atmosphere is 80% hydrogen, 19% helium. And the methane, the tiny bit of methane, absorbs red light from the sun. So it makes Neptune appear blue. But there must be other chemicals that 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 make Neptune that vivid azure rather than Uranus's milder cyan. Because so, Uranus and Neptune are almost identical in their kind of chemical makeup. But... Yeah, they're, they're definitely different colours. It's a beautiful hue. It is a beautiful hue, isn't it? It's like a It's really, a good word, that, isn't it? Along yeah. with azure. Yeah, a, a, a hue of azure, a vivid azure. That's what, an azure grape. That's what it's like. It's it's this the grape where the it's even got this skin effect where some of the winds go the opposite direction to the other winds and things like that. Oh, I love a grape as well. Oh, I do love grapes. I love quite, seed, I, great, I, mate. No, I actually quite like grapes with the seeds in. I don't know why. Does why that make do me weird? To, yeah, he's such a freak, man. <laughs> they're, they're somehow slightly more tasty. I don't know what it is. Definitely olives with grape uh, stones oh, in a better. Yeah. Now I, I agree with you there. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's just a psychological thing. Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. <laughs> it's worth notice, no, noting that Neptune's axis is very similar to Earth's, so it's slightly tilted. So it has seasons, mm. a bit like Earth, but the seasons oh. on Neptune last about 40 years. So we have been observing seasons, but of course it's a very, very slow process. That's a long winter, isn't it? 40 yeah. years. Yeah, so if you were in a, a winter spot on Neptune, that's not so great. Agreed. No. But it's got rings. Neptune's got rings, Jamie. Did you know? Yeah, five rings named after the characters I was talking about earlier. Gala, Leverrier, Lasselle, Arago and Adams. Nice. And the Adams rings are split up into courage, liberty, egality and fraternity. Parts of the French kind of constitution speak type stuff, I think. They think that the the gravitational effect of one of the tiny moons, Galatea, is making it into kind of arcs rather than full rings. Okay. Unlike Saturn, which has that beautiful fresh ice where the ice is just remains fresh all the time and so it's very, very bright. Neptune's rings are made of dust and rock and are probably 
gone very dark from radiation, so gone down to this reddish hue. So they're not particularly easy to see. Uh, again, Hubble's actually been seeing the arcs in the Adams ring slowly disappearing. So it's it's likely that Liberty arc may be gone within the century. Are there some nice photos of the rings? Yeah, there's some great photos. Of course, virtually all of the photos of the uh, rings of uh, Neptune were taken by Voyager two. I'm gonna I'm gonna Google it right now because I'm just so interested. Let's have a look. When I tell you what pl- Pluto, we're going to get to Pluto here because oh, wow, this is one of the reasons why I think Pluto just can't be considered a planet because Neptune is clearly the boss of it. So Neptune, you could consider the kind of gatekeeper of the Kuiper Belt, and mm. lots of the lots of the Kuiper Belt actually starts forming into bands due to orbital resonances. So, for example, if Neptune goes round three times around the sun, Pluto is actually going round two times. So it's in this two to three orbital resonance with Neptune. And Pluto actually is. And Pluto's orbit, because it's much more elliptical, actually comes within Neptune's. So it actually crosses Neptune's path. This is what I was saying earlier on. Sometimes Pluto is nearer to us, nearer to the sun, than it is... Uh, the Neptune is because it's on this and it keeps crossing, but it will never crash because it's actually in this orbital resonance. So for every two orbits it does, Neptune's doing three, so they'll just never crash. Um, mm. And the, all the other bodies that are trapped in that same resonance are called Plutinos. Oh, and I, like and I think that's one of the big reasons why Pluto isn't a planet. It's clearly being dominated by Neptune. Now, that domination of objects in the Kuiper Belt is very strong evidence for the for the moon itself. So Triton is the largest of the 14 moons that are going around Neptune. Now, Triton is it it's it's amazing this moon. It's slightly bigger than Pluto and a little bit smaller than our moon. And it's the seventh largest okay. moon in the, it's the seventh largest moon in the solar system. But wow. it's going uh, for, it's the most unusual moon in the solar system in the fact that n- there's no other circularized moon, i.e. a moon that's got big enough to, to become a, a, a sphere, uh, that has, that has, uh, that's going round the planet in the opposite way that the planet's spinning. In other words, it's going round retrograde, round um, Neptune. Okay. And not only that, it really does look a little bit like Pluto. So what that means is it's highly likely that Neptune has plucked that moon out of the Kuiper belt, that it didn't form as a moon uh, with the planet, but it was captured later on. So this 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 Kuiper belt object has come in and, and just entered orbit around Neptune. And it could have quite easily have been Pluto. So Pluto really could have been one of Neptune's moons, but actually it ends, up being, it ends up being Triton. What, what could have been? Yeah. Sad story. Um, and it's unbelievably cold there. It's ridiculously cold because the moon itself has got a very, very high albedo. So it reflects mm-hmm. all, virtually all the sunlight and therefore it gets ridiculously cold. So it gets down to minus 235 degrees Celsius. Is albedo like a libido? 
<laughs> not to be I don't think it's it is to be confused actually. Oh, okay. Triton much to everyone's surprise when Voyager went past past it is clearly active. So it's got tectonic structures, cryovolcanic landforms, um cantaloupe terrain. So this cantaloupe terrain it looks like the skin of a cantaloupe melon. It's all crumpled up. Isn't it pronounced cantaloupe? You say tomato, I say tomato. There we go. Shall we shall we call the whole thing off? Yeah. Bye, Spodcats. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> uh, which, which would save us. The incredible one was that Voyager saw plumes coming off, just like Enceladus and just like Europa. So Triton, Jamie, is another one of these mm. exciting moons. Don't get me started. I've got enough. So it's quite likely that as the moon was captured by um, Neptune, it would have, when it was first captured, it would have been in quite an eccentric orbit, like a very elliptical orbit. Um, mm. And so all that pulling and pushing, all those tidal forces would have heated uh, the centre of Triton up, the core of Triton up, which would have been enough to sort of make these, li- to, to make parts of Triton uh, liquid water again. So, a bit like Pluto, there's a high chance that there's a liquid ocean underneath the surface. And a very recent paper about Pluto uh, says that one of the reasons why Pluto might have an uh, an ocean under the surface, despite it being freezing cold, and, and it should have frozen a long, long time ago, is uh, it's that maybe these water oceans are covered in a thin layer of gas hydrates, which basically insulate the water from getting frozen. And uh, these Japanese scientists were able to kind of show this um, this effect. So it's that's a really interesting article. And maybe wow, the that's same- insane. But yeah. that's quite like Europa, though, isn't it? With the thick wall of ice and, and ocean underneath. Europa and, uh, and Enceladus changed everything. It's not necessarily tidal forces and things like that that have caused that's caused these liquid oceans to, to actually form. Yeah. So the idea that, that you know, that the, the Goldilocks zone could be massively increased if places like Triton and Pluto have liquid water on them. You know, we're talking unbelievable distances out, like 30 AU out, and that's possibly expanding the habitable zone out to there. Which is just, which really does change everything. That is genius, isn't it? There's been quite a lot of really recent studies about um, Triton as well. There was even a paper that looked at uh, in the lab what they did. They were looking at they were combining different molecule combinations, and yeah. they and they combined carbon monoxide and nitrogen ice, and looked at the spectrum of it, and then they were able to isolate a spectrum that that combination gives and then looked for it on triton and found it so that they they can confirm that that type of molecule combination is happening on triton for example and i think that that kind of Hmm. works amazing isn't it an icy spectral fingerprint they called it yes it's insane and that's i'm interested and that's further evidence that triton is harboring an ocean so it's totting up but the bad news for triton i'm afraid is its orbit is decaying and it's going to reach the Roche limit and will be torn apart into a Saturn-like ring uh, system. Oh, so, yeah, all, all, just, all the other moons, tiny. 
And the last one, Hippocamp, was discovered in 2013 by stacking Hubble images. Hippocamp sounds like a friendly place, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to live, live on Hippocamp. Although it is the most dangerous animal in Africa. I bet you would last less time in Hippocamp than you would in the Nile. <laughs> Although I don't really rate your chances on either, to be honest. I'm in denial. Nay. Sorry. Oh, and Neptune's got loads and loads of Trojans following and trailing it at the L4 and L5 Lagrangian points. You know how well, I love it. It has to have Trojans if it's Neptune, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. All Trojans are pretty stable because they because L4 and L5 is one of those points where you can't really get out of that um, that gravitational well. It's it's super stable because every time you start uh, moving out, you get dragged back in again. So it, it they've probably been like that for ever since Neptune was formed. So those are those would be interesting objects to go and look at as well. Uh, yeah. So what about future missions? Is considered to be a flagship orbital mission. What do you think about that? Well, well, yeah. So NASA have flagship missions. I think Cassini was a flagship mission. Um, yeah. So that would, yeah, that would be a, a mission that would be in the late twenty twenties or early twenty thirties. But don't hold your breath. Another proposal was for Argo, right? Yeah, and that was supposed to have been launched this year, but I can't see that happening. No. <laughs> uh, so we won't see it. Two thousand and three, there was a, a vision mission study uh, for Neptune orbiter with probes, which was very similar to Cassini as well, where it drops and probes down onto the various uh, moons and things. Um, but I, I think that's been cancelled. Um, so, 2008 one by NASA was cancelled. Yeah, and, and the 2010 was cancelled. So I, I think it's because it's because Europa... Uh, it's and Enceladus just seem more appealing. So it's yeah. going to be very, very hard to get people to to go to Neptune. But it, but we we just really, really need to go see it. So in two thousand nineteen, this year, the Neptune flyby proposal was made by JPL under the name Trident for a discovery program, and Louise Proctor of JPL said, the time is now to do this mission. Uh, the time is now to do it at low cost and we'll investigate whether it is a habitable world which is of huge importance. So basically the seasons take so long, 40 years, that if you miss the one that's happening at the moment, we're going to have to wait ages before we get another ideal shot at it. And in 2026, there's an ideal window where you can go straight from Earth use Jupiter as an assist to get you on your way. And that would be our best chance of seeing one of these geezers going through it, uh, collecting some data, maybe finding bacteria or some form of life being sprayed out of Triton. But That's the best way. Yeah. But it's, it's one of the things about all these NASA missions is NASA is running out of plutonium. And, of course, when you're that far away from the sun, you need uh, a radioactive source of power rather than a solar panel. So these RTGs, they're running out of, of, of nuclear material to actually power their RTGs. So, yeah, that's... so that they have Dr. Emmett Brown get some from the Libyans? But then that would result in him being machine-gunned 
a sad start to a film, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was a bit sad. But it turned out all right in the end, didn't it? Turned out it was all right. Mm. Yeah. As only, I suppose mm. we should we should mention how Neptune formed. They should. Was was probably formed nearer the sun. Okay. All the different kind of ice aspects of it, it seems a bit unlikely yes. that it formed where it's ended up. So if you ever want to see a really cool animation of the Nice model, go onto YouTube or go onto the notes. I'll stick it in. So the Nice model is currently one of the best kind of models of how the solar system formed where all the planets all the different planets formed and it explains things like the late heavy bombardment and the Oort cloud the kuiper belt all those kind of things so it's a very very powerful thing so it's it's we'll stick it up online yeah we'll stick it up online there's it's quite hard to talk about because it's so visual well i absolutely love neptune i might get a poster well, yeah, I mean ne- Neptune's glory, and we and and it's a pity that we don't ne- ne- know enough about it. But Triton really is very exciting, and I think Triton really does put the nail in the coffin of Pluto being a planet because they're they're clearly very similar objects. And I, I, yeah, I that's true. you know, I knew Triton was interesting, but when you read about it and you see all the little studies on it, the chance of finding a moon with a, a subsurface ocean thirty AU out. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, that is ridiculous. It is absolutely mental. I mean, imagine if we find life on Triton. Life on Triton. Now we're talking. So we keep expanding it, don't we? Europa, Enceladus, Triton, Titan. God damn. That's in our solar system. Think about what's outside. So, Jamie, if, if people have enjoyed our, our, our rambling on about Neptune, what, what can they do? Well, there's only one thing for it. They have to head to www interplanetary.org.uk. Is that right? Uh, I never know. Yeah, I think I think you are actually I right. I think I'm yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Uh, yeah. And you will see all of our social media platforms. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter. And we'd love for you to get in touch. If you want to become a patron and join some legends, then, you know, that's up to you. But we'd recommend it, wouldn't we? Yeah, we would definitely recommend it. So there we go. There we go. Uh, Bye, everyone. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye, Spodcats, and we love you loads, and we'll see you next week. I believe David Baker's going to be on next week, so we'll have some some space news next week. We've run out of time of talking about things like Elon Musk's ridiculous things about the ISS having lights on, and that's why his satellites won't pollute the, the night sky. What the hell? Anyway... What? What? Well, we'll save that. We hope you have a lovely, lovely sunny weekend. Sorry that this was a bit late. So, bye-bye, Spudcast. We apologise. Bye.